you would take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. If, you're, if you need a Bible, there should be a black hardbound Bible in the pew in front of you. Genesis 49 should be on page 42 of that Bible. Uh, before we read, um, a, a few weeks ago, actually after, maybe it was after their last trip to Africa, Gary Strange told me that Pastor Timothy, who you saw speaking on the video, often watches uh, the live stream of our service. So I'm going to do something I never do, which is talk to somebody who's watching on the live stream and give you our greetings, Pastor Timothy, if you happen to be watching uh, we do pray for you and for your congregation. We pray that you will stay steady in the preaching of the Word and in prayer and in shepherding God's flock. Um, and so if you will continue to pray for Pastor Timothy and his congregation whenever Gary and Mary Jane's name come up, will you just say amen so he can hear you? Amen. Amen. In Genesis 49, we'll read in just a moment. I do want to say also thank you. To all of you who came to our open house this weekend, um, what a joy it was to have so many of you come through and just be able to uh, talk together and laugh together and eat together. And for those of you who didn't come, shame on you. All right? Uh, so, but, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, just kidding. Sort of. All right. Uh, but uh, no, it was just a joy to have all of you in our home, and uh, that's what we want our home to be, is a place where the front door is always open to you, our brothers and sisters, uh, for you to, to come and to be with us. The only other thing I'll mention that's in your bulletin is you'll see that there is uh, a special Sunday school on January 22nd. Uh, and what that is, the, the elders have been talking and praying about uh, uh, what the future looks like for us at Gray Road. And there is a significant piece of that future that, we're, that is going to be part of the 2023 budget. But we did not want to simply spring that on you as a congregation uh, in, on the, in the January 29th members meeting. And so we're going to come together on January 22nd during the Sunday school hour and I want to lay out for you the vision of where we want to go, where we want to step out in faith and serve the Lord and see Him bless, and uh, where, how that is related to the budget. And so if you are a member of Gray Road Baptist Church, I will use very strong language, you must be here that morning. This affects all of us, every single one of us. Every one of us will have a hand in this because it's something that if we don't do it together, we probably won't do it. And so you may not be accustomed to coming to Sunday school. We can have that conversation another time. But you need to be here that morning at 9.30. And uh, we're not going to close it off. So if you're not a member and, and you show up, I'd be glad for you to hear where we believe the Lord is taking us and where he's, where he's leading us and what we want to step out and do for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the coming years, all right? So January 22nd, we'll be underscoring that and emphasizing it in all caps, you know, italics, bold, underline, uh, January 22nd during the Sunday school hour, all right? Um, 
Now, let's turn to the Word of God and hear together Genesis chapter 49. I'm going to read verses 8 to 12. This is what the Spirit says. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to your word, we pray that your spirit will be our teacher and we pray that what we know not you will teach us. What we have not, you will give us, and what we are not, you will make us for the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and in his name we pray, amen. Uh, Growing up, there were certain phrases that as a kid you could use in special circumstances. Uh, So if you were trading barbs with uh, a friend and you basically ran out of ideas, you might say something like, I'm rubber and you're glue. Everything you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Um, If one of your friends were to threaten to tell his parents about whatever it is that you're doing, uh, to take it up a level, you might say something like, well, my dad can beat up your dad. Now, I don't think my kids ever use that one. even though I do have a yellow belt in Taekwondo. It's probably expired by now, but I did achieve it at one, some point. Um, but you know, if your friends or your siblings are telling you what to do, you might look them in the eye and pull out this classic. You're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. And what's interesting is that as we grow up, that one doesn't really fade. It just morphs. Uh, The instinct to be your own boss, to make your own rules, to create your own morality, your own ethics, and to resist anyone or anything that would contradict you, that instinct lives in every human being. Its roots wrap around our heart, and it won't let go without a fight. And it's actually been that way since the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve basically look at God and say, you're not the boss of me, then they choose to disobey Him, to go their own way, and to drag really all of humanity into sin. And we didn't really get dragged. We go willingly, don't we? 
But ever since then, there's been this instinct in the human heart. Each of us comes into the world with this kind of instinct. In the realm of theology, we call it our sin nature. But just in common language, we might call it human autonomy. Autonomy, a word that basically means that I'm a law for myself. And the culture that we live in doesn't oppose this kind of autonomy. It actually feeds this kind of autonomy. It encourages this kind of autonomy. Our, our culture looks at you and says, you do you. You are your highest authority. You can be your greatest priority. You are your own lawmaker and judge. And pleasing you, it's fine for that to be the only thing that matters to you, so long as you are pleased with you. And the reality is lots of people think this, don't they? You have friends who think this, don't you? You have family members who think this, don't you? And if we were honest and looked closely at our own hearts, the reality is, is that some who are in this room think this. You see, those who subscribe to the you-do-you mentality don't like being told what to do. They hate correction. They actually think you are wrong for telling me that I am wrong. And the only authority that matters is me. And, they, and one who subscribes to this might, say, might think something like, well, I'm okay with authority so long as those who are in authority affirm me and affirm what I say and don't contradict me. But other than that, I'm not okay with authority. I don't want anyone telling me these things. You don't like being under authority at home. You don't like being under authority at school. You don't like being under authority at work. You don't like being, being under authority anywhere. I just want to do what I want to do. And if we look into our hearts, we find this, whether in full force or in remnants that pop up. Because you want what you want. Now, I begin this way and talk about this because we've been thinking about Jesus coming as a promised Savior. And in doing so, we've looked at the various offices in Israel that he fulfills, that he is the ultimate of that. He is the prophet who has come into the world. He is the priest. And today, we look at the fact that Jesus comes as a king. And this kind of human autonomy, this kind of you-do-you mentality, it can tolerate Jesus the prophet it may appreciate Jesus the priest, but it kicks hard against Jesus the king. Because you see, kings rule. Kings have authority. Kings require submission and obedience. You don't look at a king and say, you're not the boss of me. It doesn't go well for those who do that with kings. Because the fact is, the king is the boss. Kings don't look at their subjects and say, 
Well, you just do you. And Jesus comes as a king. And this text that we are looking at today points us to Jesus as king. You see, what's happening here is that Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, is at the end of his life. And he has gathered his sons to speak to them. And what he speaks in these poetic words to Judah is not just a blessing. It is a prophecy. A prophecy about a king. A prophecy he may not have even known. He didn't know the fullness of how prophetic it really was on the day when it was spoken. And this is what I want us to think about as we come to think about Jesus coming as king. First, I want us to think about the content of this prophecy. Okay? Now, if you'll recall, maybe I think it was last week, we talked a bit about prophecy and how as it's given originally in the Old Testament, it's like the bud of a flower. And is the, as, the new, as the Old Testament goes along, it'll often begin to open up and you'll begin to see indications that it's flowering, that it's being fulfilled. But it doesn't come to its fullness until the New Testament. So here we have such a flower bud handed to us. So what is the content of this prophecy? Well, there are basically three things that, that Jacob says about his son Judah, about the, what becomes the tribe of Judah, really. The first thing he talks about is Judah's prominence. Judah's prominence. Listen to verses 8 and 9. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? So Judah will be prominent among his brothers. They will bow down to him. They will praise him. Now, for those of you who know your Bibles, who maybe just know the book of Genesis, can you imagine this set of brothers hearing this? Because it wasn't all that long ago that Joseph stood among them and said, well, guys, I had a dream. And here's what happened. All y'all going to bow down to me. And it didn't go so well for the guy who said that. Because they sold him into slavery. And ultimately, they did bow down before him, didn't they? As he saves them. But now, here is their father, Jacob, saying, Yes, one, there's one among you. And you'll all bow to him. And you'll all praise him. You'll all exalt him. You'll all lift him up. He will be prominent. But not only will he be prominent among his brothers in Israel, he'll be, he'll be powerful over his enemies. Listen to this phrase. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. The hand in the Bible is often a picture of power, of authority, of control. And we actually use this kind of imagery, don't we? You may say something like, I've got this situation well in hand. Well, what does that mean? It means I've got things under control. I've got things handled. And so, and the neck is a place of vulnerability. So this image of the hand on the neck is one that is dominant. It is that he will be dominant over his enemies. He will conquer his enemies. He will subdue his enemies. And then he adds this picture of a lion. 
crouching. And look at the, look at the, look at the question at the end of verse 9. Who dares rouse him? You know, there's a Chinese proverb that says, wake not a sleeping lion. Who dares rouse a lion? Well, really, only somebody who's looking for trouble. That's who rouses a lion. That's how prominent Judah will be. The second thing, not only does, does he speak of Judah's prominence, he speaks of Judah's permanence. Judah's permanence. Look at verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So this prominence will not be temporary. It will endure. The scepter was a symbol of the king's authority was a symbol of his leadership, was a symbol of his rule and his reign. And when you add that already to this lion that shows up in the verse just before, lions in the ancient Near East were often used as pictures of kings, an image of royalty. You have this idea that this prominence is a kingship, and this kingship is going to last. Judah's scepter's not going to depart. It's not going anywhere. It won't be replaced. It'll be established. It'll last until all of the nations bring tribute to him. That's quite a picture, isn't it? Judah's prominence, Judah's permanence, and then Judah's prosperity. Look at verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Now, that may not mean anything to you. You're never really around donkeys. And, uh, you know, apart from the vines that grow up a tree in your yard, you're not really, uh, you're not around trees that have grapes. These are, these are trees where you'd have grapes and make wine. But but actually, this is a picture of wealth, of abundance, of even extravagance. I mean, lots of people would have vines, but choice vines are the best. They produce the best grapes that produce the best wine. And here, this thing which would be treasured and special and set apart, he has so much of it that he'll just tie his donkey up to it. Do you know what happens if you would just tie a donkey up to something that's edible? It'll eat it. The donkey's not going to look and say, oh, this is a choice vine. I should probably hold off. I should wait until I get some hay or something or until I get a lower vine. No, no, no. The donkey just says, seafood, eat it. The donkey is a teenage boy, really. And <laughs> just, you see food, you eat it. That's what happens. That's how, that's how much of this choice vine there is. You can tie your donkey up to it and eat it. It's not going to affect his bottom line at all. It's like if somebody were to take a fillet of like that Kobe beef that sells for like $250 a pound and grind it up and make dog food out of it. It's extravagance. It's luxury. It's wealth. It's prosperity. And not only that, but the wine that comes from this, there's so much wine, there's so much great wine that it's as abundant as the water that you would wash your clothes with. 
I mean, it's, that's, how, that's how disposable it is. That's how plentiful it is. He washes, look at the second half of verse 11. He washes his garments in this wine, in his vesture, in the blood of grapes. There's so much of it. I mean, that's how much it is. You could just wash your, just wash your clothes in it. Things that you and I would save up for for years and years and years and years is just disposable to him. That's how much prosperity this picture is meant to uh, communicate to us. What a blessing. I mean, his father's words are, you will be prominent. You'll be a king, a victorious king, a king that is permanent, a king that brings such prosperity that it's beyond your imagination to even be able to comprehend. That's the bud of the flower. That's the blessing that's passed on to Judah. But as you read the Old Testament and as you go along, the flower begins to open and this picture begins to emerge more and more and the idea of a coming king is repeated and developed. So, let's look at that. Secondly, let's think about the development of the prophecy. It comes back over and over again. It actually will come up before we get out of the first five books of the Bible. It comes back in the book of Numbers, where the king of Moab hires a prophet named Balaam, and he wants Balaam to go and curse God's people. But Balaam can't do it. He can only say what God says. And part of what he does, which I won't read for you, is actually uh, he basically repeats what's said there in verse 9, speaking of, uh, of Jacob, of Israel. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? But then he says this, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Here you have a king who will defeat his enemies. Then this idea of kingship is developed even further in Deuteronomy chapter 17 as Moses is preparing God's people to go into the land. He says there are going to come days when you're going to have a king, but this is the kind of king that he needs to be. He needs to be a king whose heart is not dominated by money, a heart, a heart who's not, that's not dominated by wives, that's not distracted by many wives, but instead that God's law needs to be on his heart. He needs to write his own copy of it so it gets down deep in him and so he never turns away from it. And then in time, the monarchy is established, and the, the second king of Israel is who? David, from the tribe of Judah. Don't tell me that when they're at that ceremony, nobody's ears are perking up and remembering a scepter that's going to be in Judah. Could David be the one that Jacob was talking about when he blessed Judah. And the reality is, is that David does gain victory over his enemies. That's why we have the picture of David over Goliath. It's not so you can face the Goliaths in your life, you understand. It's so that we can see that he is the king who brings victory over enemies. And in 2 Samuel 3, God has given them rest from their enemies because of David's leadership. Rest. Well, chapter 7, there's rest from their enemies on all sides. 
David has his hand, as it were, on the neck of their enemies. But it doesn't last. And yet in David, there's this little foretaste that here's, here's what it's going to be like. Here's a little glimpse. Here's just the barely opening of the bud of this flower. That here is a king whose hand is on the neck of his enemies. And here is prosperity under David. And, prosper- and, and this, is, this is what it'll be like? Well, God even repeats his promise of this king to David, doesn't he? In 2 Samuel 7, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David, the scepter, will not depart. There's coming a day when a king will be on a throne forever. And David really is only a partial fulfillment of that prophecy. The ultimate fulfillment is still to come, and echoes of that ultimate fulfillment come in the prophets. In Jeremiah chapter 23, I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And in Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a son is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Of the, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Did you hear all that? Prominence. From in this son, the government will rest on his shoulder. Permanence. Forevermore. Prosperity, there will be peace, there will be justice, there will be righteousness. That same promise echoed here. You even hear it in the Psalms. I mean, you should go home today. I couldn't read everywhere that a king is talked about, but go home and read Psalm 2, how all the kings of the earth rage against God and against his anointed, but God sets up his own king. Listen to Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, when you open the pages of the New Testament, you'll often hear, especially like a place like Matthew, you'll often hear, this was done to fulfill what was written, and then there'll be a quote. And there are a lot more, so quotes are more like word for word, or at least phrase for phrase kind of quotes, depending on which, you know, whether it was the Hebrew Old Testament that writer's using, or the Greek translation. But then there are all these allusions, all these references back, well, this Psalm 45 is directly quoted in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 1. But there's a little preface before you get to those words, and this is what it says. But of the Son, God says. In other words, the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 49, verse 8 and 12, 8 to 12, which is echoed throughout all of the Old Testament 
which is seen in this text from Psalm 45, finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the one that Jacob was promising without even knowing he was promising him. So that brings us to the fulfillment of the prophecy. Jesus is the king. He is the prominent one. He is the permanent one. He is the one who brings the prosperity. He is the one that God promises. And you can see it from beginning to end in the account of Jesus' life, can't you? So let's just walk through it. You see the fulfillment in Jesus' birth. In, in the Gospel of Luke, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says that her son will be this king. Listen to Gabriel's words. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And news of this coming king had spread so far that wise men from the east come after Jesus is born, and they stand before Herod, and they ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? The flower is getting broader and brighter and more beautiful. And then we see it in Jesus' ministry. When Jesus begins his ministry, he comes with a message that his arrival marks the arrival of a kingdom, God's kingdom. Jesus' message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the crowds recognize it, and they see something in him, something that they instinctively want to rule. He does all of these things, and they want to make him king in John chapter 6. You remember that? After he feeds the 5,000, they want to make him king, but it's not his time. It says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again. Then at the end of his life, Jesus comes into Jerusalem uh, as a king. He fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 and is a king coming in on the foal of a donkey. And the crowd say this, according to Luke 19, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then when Jesus is with Pilate, they have a conversation about kingship. Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. And then Pilate says, so you are a king? And Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. Not you're just saying that. This was Jesus' way of affirming what you say is true. I am a king. And then there's more fulfillment in Jesus' death and resurrection. As Jesus goes to his death, what happens? He is mocked because it is clear that the claim is he is a king. So they will mock him as king. They put a crown of thorns on him. They put a purple robe on him. They feign honor toward him and bow before him as, as if he were a king. And on the cross, an inscription hangs over him, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, an inscription that drove the chief priest crazy, and they wanted Pilate to change it, but Pilate wouldn't. 
And when Jesus dies, you would have to think that any hope of, a, of this promised king, of a permanent king, permanent kings don't die. So you would think that any hope of this actually being the fulfillment of that promise is dashed, but then on the third day, what is it that happens? Jesus is raised from the dead, and his resurrection makes it public that he has conquered his enemies. Colossians 2 says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. You see, friends, in Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus' hand was on the neck of his enemies. Oh, his hands were nailed to the cross, but he had his hand on the neck of his enemies, on the neck of our enemies, sin and death and hell. And he dominated them and he subdued them with power that nobody expected. By death, he conquered death. And he defeated them. And friend, the victory of Jesus Christ over these enemies is your only hope of having victory over these enemies. Sin has more power than you can handle. You cannot escape death, and you cannot wriggle your way out of the sentence of hell. But Jesus Christ has put his hand to the neck of those enemies. And he has conquered them so that in him you can be set free from sin and guaranteed eternal life and a home in heaven. That's what Jesus has done as king. He has triumphed over enemies. He laid his hands on your enemies so that they will never be able to lay their hands on you. You will still wrestle with sin. You will still face death in this world, but neither sin nor death nor hell will have the last word because Jesus' hand was on their necks. King Jesus' hand was on their necks. And then... In his ascension, the prophecy is fulfilled. Once Jesus is raised from the dead, he appears to his disciples and teaches them and gives him his last word, and he ascends to the Father's right hand. And Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 1, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Above all rule, above all authority, is King Jesus. And see, you see, while Jesus has come as the king and all of those things are fulfillments of, pro of the prophecy about the fact that he would come as king, can I tell you that today on December 18th, 2022, I mean, yes, he is on his throne. He is ruling and reigning from the right hand of the Father, but the flower is not yet fully opened. And it won't be until his return. Because when Jesus returns, he will not come again as a humble king. He will come as the conquering king. He will come with his hand ready for all of the last enemies. In John's vision, he sees the risen Christ. 
Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will come and he will conquer. He will rule and he will reign. And the reign of King Jesus will spread over the entire earth. Revelation 11 says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. You see, though, and, and right now the world plugs its ears at God and at his Christ and screams at the heavens, you are not the boss of me. And yet one day, Philippians 2 says, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is a confession of kingship. He is Lord. It's what riled up the government in the first century because they were all saying, Caesar is Lord. And the church was just saying, Jesus is Lord. No, no, no. And in fact, in Acts 17, verse 7, there's this, uh, there's this accusation that comes after uh, Jason hides Paul and gets him out of Thessalonica. And it comes and, and they accuse the church basically of saying that there's another king, Jesus. Don't be someone who plugs your ears and screams at the sky that you're not the boss of me, God. Don't be that person. There is no hope for one who rejects Jesus as king. There is no hope for you. There's no hope in the face of sin. And there's no hope in the face of death. And there's no hope in light of hell apart from King Jesus. The prominence of King Jesus over his enemies will be seen in his kingdom that spans the whole earth. The permanence of King Jesus will be seen because he will reign forever and ever. And the prosperity of King Jesus will be known to all who know him, to all who are his subjects, will live in a kingdom of joy and peace and justice and righteousness where there is no more sin and no more tears and no more sickness and no more death. Prosperity like you can't even imagine right now. No matter how many songs are written about heaven, no matter how many books are written about heaven, it is beyond human imagination what will come. Jesus is the prominent king. Jesus is the permanent king. Jesus is the prosperous king. Jesus is the promised king. And that's good news. Over the last several years, um, it's become quite popular to look at the man in the Oval Office, whether the current president or the former president, and then to say of that president, he is 
not my president. You've heard those words, right? Uttered, they're on t-shirts. You'll probably run across a t-shirt this week that has it on it. Because, you know, one may disagree with or dislike the president for any number of reasons and feel at liberty to just simply declare, not my president. He may be yours, but he's not mine. And when it, whichever one it may be that you hear it more about, the current or the former, you may not have voted for him, you may felt, not have felt like he was the best person for the job, uh, you may not have honored him as president or honor him currently as president, you may think he's foolish or irresponsible or impeachable, but it actually doesn't change the fact that he is president, you see? It doesn't change the objective fact of who holds the office. And in a far more significant way, the kingship of Jesus is not based on whether you or I recognize him as king. He is king. And unlike the temporary nature of the presidency, the throne of heaven is permanently filled. And to refuse this king is to refuse your only hope of forgiveness and peace and joy. To refuse his prominence and his permanence is to refuse his prosperity. But the good news, friend, is that no matter how long you have looked at Jesus Christ and said of him, not my king, no matter how long you have said that of him, He will receive you as his if you will come to him in humility and in confession and in faith. You see, the reality is, is that you can't come and I can't come to Jesus simply to be our Savior, simply to give us all the benefits that we want, to take what we want and leave what we don't. You cannot have Jesus as Savior without also having him as king. King of your life. King of your words. King of your actions. King of your relationships. King in your home. King in your work. King at school. His kingdom has no bound. There's no boundary where you step outside his kingship over you if you belong to him. And so if you call yourself a Christian this morning, the question you ought to ask yourself is, am I living with Jesus as my king? Because he is king. Do you bend your knee to him? Do you bow your head before him? You see, friends, if you won't have him as king, you can't have him at all. He is either king to you or he is nothing. There is no middle ground. Jesus is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. Come and worship the newborn king.
Let's pray. Father, we bow before you thankful that in a world of chaos, there is a king of righteousness, a king of justice, a king of peace. We are thankful that promises and prophecies that you give in your word, you keep them, you fulfill them. That you have given us your word to show you just how faithful you are to do what you say you will do. And Father, I pray that we who claim Jesus as Savior will live knowing he is our King. That it is his word that is the final word. That there is no point in life where we can plug our ears and tell Jesus that he is not the boss of us. Oh God, give us submissive and obedient hearts toward our King and Savior, Jesus. We are thankful to have a king who reigns when oceans roar, who reigns above the storm, who reigns amidst the floods of life, who reigns with grace and love, who is enthroned on high above us. Help us to live as those who know we have such a king. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing before we're dismissed.